Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, and in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he, went th- and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Fred. Morning, church. You're a cute little group this morning. (laughs) Happy New Year to you all. It is good to see you. Uh, It's New Year's Day. It's also the first Sunday of Christmas on the church calendar, also known as Youth Pastor Sunday, where usually the youth pastor does the preaching to the little crowd that shows up. But uh, I'm happy to be with you this morning. Uh, It's also the eighth day of Christmas. Um, Christmas in the church calendar isn't just a day, but it's actually a season. And uh, we all know the song, so I tried to find Jen eight maids of milking for today, but they're hard to to track down. So our text today, as you just heard, is from the Gospel of Matthew, and it's a part of the Christmas story that we don't really talk about a whole lot. This isn't one of the scenes that makes uh, the Christmas cards very often. And um, it's sort of a harsh whiplash going from last weekend, celebrating the birth of Jesus, to this week, one week later, looking at one of the most tragic and disturbing stories in all the Bible. And... um, It's this story where King Herod is attempting to protect his throne from the threat of this so-called newborn king of the Jews. And in so doing, as we heard, he gives orders that every newborn boy in all of Bethlehem is put to death. Um, Traditionally, this is the event known as the Massacre of the Innocents, 
or the slaughter of the innocents. And it's obviously not a happy story. Um, but there's a reason that the Holy Spirit inspired the gospel writers to include this event in their accounts. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from it if we pay attention. So before we come to the text, if we pan out a little bit, one of the things we need to know is that one of the most dominant motifs throughout the entire biblical narrative is what we might call the clash of the kingdoms. There's this recurring uh, motif from Genesis to Revelation that that's, there's these two kingdoms that are in confrontation or in conflict with one another. The kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God. And so you see that playing out over and over and over again in different eras and different settings and in different forms throughout the story of God. And so uh, N.T. Wright sums it up like this, that the entirety, the entire story of the Bible is the story of Israel's God taking on arrogant tyrants of the world, overthrowing their power, and rescuing his people from under its cruel weight. Okay, you see this happening from way back in the beginning in Egypt and in Babylon and then now into the Roman Empire is this clash of the kingdoms. And if you can bring that kind of set of lenses to the biblical story, it'll start to make a lot of sense um, of some of these narratives. And so if we go back just a little bit in chapter 2 to the beginning of this section, we're given two details about the historical setting of Jesus' birth. Matthew 2.1 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to, to Jerusalem. And so um, this is the story, that the story we're in this morning directly follows the story of the Magi, or the three wise men. Um, we're not going to get into all the details. This is one of those places where kind of tradition has trumped scripture. And when we think of the Magi, we import a whole bunch of other ideas that aren't actually in the text. Um, and so, for example, how many wise men were there? We think there's three, because there were three gifts mentioned, but it never says. There could have been dozens of them, uh, for example, but we kind of like the idea that there's three of them. Um, <clears throat> we also sometimes refer to them as kings, we three kings. Um, they're not kings in the sense of political rulers. Um, they're magi, probably closer to like sorcerers or um, that sort of thing. And so uh, there's not three of them. They're not kings, and they're probably not from Orientar. Um, we don't know where they are from, but... <laughs> Um, but here's what we do know. Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem, a tiny little town, and he's born during the time of King Herod. So think about, again, this kind of um, picture of the clash of the kingdoms. The, the gospel writers here are setting up another clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of earth, and this time it's Herod who's kind of the figurehead of this kingdom of earth. So Herod is a really interesting character, and there's a lot we do know about him from the scripture, but there's a lot we know about him um, from extra-biblical historical uh, writings as well, and so he's a fascinating guy to study. Um, Herod, what you need to know, is probably one of the most richest 
uh, and powerful people who has ever lived. And in the known world at that time, um, incredible, incredible wealth, like, like beyond what we could even imagine. Um, some scholars think that he made a hundred times the annual GDP of the entire nation of Israel, just he himself. Okay, so he has multiple palaces um, across the land and loved to flaunt his wealth and his power in all kinds of ways. And so we can't even, we don't have a category for somebody with this level of wealth. Like Elon Musk would mow Herod's lawn and Jeff Bezos would be his pool boy. Like, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. So, um, one of the palaces, if you came with us to Israel a few years ago, you saw uh, some of these. This one's called Masada. Do we have that picture, the first, uh, the first one? This is one of the most incredible places I've ever been. Um, this is one of Herod's palaces that's uh, in southern Israel's in the Judean desert, and you can see off in the, in the distance overlooks the Dead Sea. And um, the way you get up to it now is on this cable car, which is really crazy, but you kind of see the tiered levels of his palace and each one with these pools of, of water and baths, and this is just the ruins of it. You can't even imagine what it looked like in its heyday. Um, and so this was just one of the places, this was kind of his vacation home, we think. Um, it's one of the places he would go um, when he well, felt kind of like, you know, he needed to get out of the city or something like that. Um, another one of his palaces, this next image, is called the Herodium. And this is from a distance. What's interesting is it looks like, oh yeah, a little hill, you know, kind of like a mini Pilot Butte or something like that. And he had his palace on top of it. Um, the interesting part was, is that um, before he built the palace, he built the hill. He uh, wanted to be at the highest point in the land, and there wasn't a hill there, so he had slaves um, bring in all this dirt and construct this giant hill. And then on top of it, uh, from the aerial image here, you can see the ruins of his palace. So we don't even know what all was included in that. Um, and so there, there's more I could show you, and the archaeology um, that's around today is fascinating. You can see some of the remnants of his contribution to the temple in Jerusalem, these massive, massive bricks that uh, we can't even understand how they were able to fabricate them or transport them. Um, it, we, it would be hard with our technology. And so um, Herod was this uh, incredible, um, in, in the sense of powerful, world-renowned, mighty, rich um, ruler. Um, here's what else you need to know about him. Wasn't known for being a great guy. <laughs> he ascended to power through brute violence, through manipulation, through force. He happily would use any person to accomplish uh, any means. He had at least 10 wives, most of them strategically selected um, that, in a way that would allow him to have access to greater power, to family uh, wealth and fortune and that sort of thing, um, and had zero loyalty even to the people who were closest to him. So we know that he killed at least three of his own children because they represented to him a threat to his throne. Um, he was happy to do that. Uh, he often would use whatever military force or slave labor was at hand to do whatever he wanted, and he was despised um, by the people that were under his leadership. 
So much so that one of the last things Herod did was ordered that a bunch of the Jewish um, leaders, religious leaders, uh, educational leaders, cultural leaders, would be imprisoned. And then on the day that Herod died, they, they were ordered that all of those Jewish leaders would be killed. And the reason was Herod didn't want people rejoicing when he died. He wanted people crying. And so they, uh, he did whatever necessary. And so in Matthew's account, Herod is freaking out because he has gotten news that there's a newborn king of the Jews. And this isn't welcome news to him, of course. He sees himself as the one and only and eternal king of the Jews. And so when these magi come and report that they've seen this star and all that, Herod's anxiety and paranoia go into a full effect. And so when we come down to verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. And so in this passage that we're in this morning, there's kind of three distinct movements. And each one of them includes God speaking to Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, through an angel or through a dream. And so that's sort of one of the narrative patterns that we see. And so this first, um, this first word that God has for Joseph that comes uh, from an angel during a dream is to take the child and flee to Egypt. Now there's all sorts of biblical backstory when it comes to Egypt and all this kind of stuff. We won't get into it, but for the first readers, the Jewish audience that Matthew is writing to, there's all kinds of connections being made about this being kind of like a new Moses, a new uh, Messiah, a new liberating king. Um, and this flight for Egypt is something that in Protestantism we uh, don't make a whole lot of uh, a big deal about. Um, but in Catholicism and in the Orthodox Church, this is something that's been depicted uh, in a lot of beautiful artistic ways throughout the year. This is one of my favorite images of the flight, of, flight to Egypt. Um, you kind of see them on this uh, epic road trip through the desert and Mary and the Christ child catching a, a nap in the... Is that a sphinx? Is that what those are called? So um, I love that picture. And here's another modern interpretation that makes this feel not so far off, not so long ago. But in reality, that's exactly what we're talking about here. The Holy Family as refugees fleeing political violence, a threat to their lives, <clears throat> fleeing the Middle East, going into Africa. And we see Jesus amongst those that we continue to see this struggle today. In verse 16, when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned with the Magi. Okay, so again, we have this clash of the kingdoms. 
we have these two kings now that are on the scene. And the way that Matthew and the other gospel writers tell this story, they juxtapose these two kings and kingdoms in a way where we're meant to compare and contrast them. So Herod is this great, powerful, mighty, wealthy king. And Jesus, what kind of king is he? Weak, poor, fragile, vulnerable, small, homeless, refugee. Herod only gives when it benefits him. Jesus inaugurates this kingdom marked by love and self-sacrifice. And Herod, of course, just the irony of this whole thing, this great mighty king with palaces and armies and slaves is freaking out because he's threatened by a refugee baby. And he orders then that all the baby boys in the land be put to death. Sometimes we've had uh, either depictions or interpretations of this story that would make us think we're talking about tens of thousands um, of babies that are slaughtered. Uh, Bethlehem was a very small town. Um, It was likely maybe 10 to 20 babies that we're talking about. Um, Not that it's not still a big deal, But this is a very localized event within the context of history. And so Herod has all of these armed soldiers going out and laying down their lives for his kingdom. And in the kingdom of Jesus, the first martyrs are babies. So when this baby shows up, it causes mass vertigo and has this kind of prophetic presence in the world. And it's a kingdom that's totally upside down from Herod's. Here's how Brian Zahn describes it. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born into a world where vicious despots were willing to employ hideous violence to hold on to power, which is to say, a world not unlike our own. The lethal violence directed at Jesus first as an infant and then at the end of his life accentuates the political nature of the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom does nothing less than radically reimagine how the world should be organized. So again, one of those places where we start to realize this story isn't that long ago and isn't that far away. I distinctly remember the last time I taught from this biblical text. It was December 16th, 2012. And it was almost exactly 10 years ago, it was two weeks. And um, I remember that Sunday because it was two days after the Sandy Hook massacre. And if you remember, a 20-year-old gunman entered into an elementary school in Connecticut and killed 26 people, including 26 and seven-year-old first graders. And it was the deadliest school shooting in US history. And um, unfortunately, we already had a category for this thing called a school shooting 10 years ago, but this took it to another level, um, both because of how young the kids were and because of how many um, were killed. And this happened on a Friday, 10 days before Christmas, and I had to get up on Sunday and say something to our church in Corvallis. And um, this was the text that we landed on. 
this story of another time where innocents were slaughtered at what we would call Christmas time. And again, it doesn't cheer us up in any way. It doesn't show us any kind of silver lining or even redemption in that sense. But what it simply does is remind us that the Christmas story, the Jesus story in the Bible, happens in the real world. It wasn't calm, silent night. <clears throat> it was the real world where kids get murdered. And for me, what that does, again, nothing happy about it, but what it does is gives me confidence that this Savior, that the Messiah of Israel that the Jews longed for is the same Savior and Messiah that we long for. And he doesn't just make sense or hold up in some serene Disneyland version of the world, but he's come to us in this very world. That was 10 years ago. Yesterday, as the world was celebrating New Year's Eve, Russia was dropping hundreds of missiles and explosive drones across Kiev and other Ukrainian countries. People were ringing in the new year by fleeing for their lives. And so what we see in this juxtaposition of these two kingdoms, Herod's kingdom marked by greed and violence and accumulation, control and dominance and power, and then this totally upside-down kingdom, this refugee baby, homeless, impoverished, weak, and vulnerable. There's so much I want to say about this. One thing I do want to put on your radar, when it comes to the contrasting of these two kingdoms, a kingdom of violence versus a kingdom of shalom. Um, we have an, a conversation coming up in two weeks. It's on Saturday night, the 14th, 15th? January 14th. Jesus, nonviolence, and enemy love. And uh, Dr. Gary Brashears is one of my longtime mentors and personal pastors and uh, kind of a hero in the faith. And we, we get to hear from him on that Sunday. The night before, he's going to be with us, leading us in a conversation um, around what it looks like to follow Jesus in the real world, in a world that continues to be marked by violence. And what does Jesus, what, what does Jesus teach? And what does the church embody when it comes to some of these questions about guns and about war and all that kind of stuff. And so I would, uh, we're not gonna go there now, but I would love to invite you to come and be part of that conversation on the 14th because I think it's one of the most distinct ways that the kingdom of God um, can be embodied by the church here and now, today. So, Christmas confronts us with this challenge these two kingdoms, and it asks us this question, where does your loyalty lie? Which king will you follow? To which kingdom will you pledge your allegiance? It asks us to examine our lives and ask, does my life more closely align with the kingdom of Herod or with the kingdom of Jesus? Is my life more closely aligned with the pursuit of greed and accumulation, wealth, power, 
and using whatever means necessary to get it? Or is my life more aligned with the kingdom of Jesus, marked by peace, contentment, sacrifice, and generosity? And if we really take that question seriously, and if we really consider that challenge, I know that every single one of us will find places in our lives where the kingdom of Jesus has yet to overcome. And some of you are going, wait, are you saying, Pete, that it's, there's something wrong with wanting to be successful? And I would say, well, it depends on what you're trying to be successful at. Because it would be a bummer to spend your life chasing success in something that doesn't matter or something that's not at the heart of the kingdom of God. And so here's my question for you this morning as we start this new year together. I'm not big on New Year's resolutions or, or whatever, but I do have a question for you, and it's this. What might the Spirit of God be asking you to remove from your life this year? See, the kingdom of Herod is about more, 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 bigger, better, more wealth, more accumulation, more power, more money, more stuff, more control. And the kingdom of Jesus is upside down. It's where he becomes, he who was rich becomes poor. Jesus leaves the comfort and security of his home in heaven and becomes one of us. It's not about getting or taking or accumulating. It's about giving, laying down, and offering. So sometimes when we ask this kind of question, it's like, well, what do you need to add to your life? What do you need to take on? What new rhythms or practices or disciplines or something? And if you want to do that, that's fine. But I think this is actually a more important question to start with. What is God asking you to remove from your life this year? Remove from your schedule? Remove from your budget? Remove from the place of prominence that it has in your heart, your thoughts, your mind, your decision-making. I want, to, want you to take just a moment to seriously ask, this year, what is God asking me to remove? Okay, here's what I think just happened. I think as you pondered that question, at least two different answers came into your mind. And one of them was big and scary, and the other one was a little easier and more manageable, so you chose the second one. <laughs> now that's okay. If that's where you're at, then you don't need to make over your entire life today. You can just take that, that next step. But I want you to at least name that. And maybe, just maybe, <clears throat> that first answer was the right answer. Maybe there is actually something significant that God is asking you to lay down for him this year. What you see throughout this story 
in addition to prophecies fulfilled, in addition to God speaking to the family and leading them to safety, is that God doesn't actually ever eliminate the threat. He doesn't neutralize Herod or his armies. He doesn't change the circumstances that the Holy Family is facing. So sometimes God answers our prayers not by making the storm stop, but by providing a place of refuge. The invitation that he gives to Joseph, to Mary, to the Christ child, is I've got a place prepared for you where you can go and your life will be spared with me. I'll protect you and you'll flourish there. The world continues to be broken, messy, ruled by the kingdoms of this world. But sometimes God answers our prayers, not by making the storm stop, but providing places of refuge. And in order to meet him there, we have to be willing to leave where we are. So what's God asking you? To lay down, leave behind, or remove from your life this year. And I know it, if you're taking this seriously, it may be scary. It leaves us vulnerable. It leaves us uncertain of what our life looks like without whatever that thing is. And I get that. But what this story teaches us is that God is always fully prepared to handle the consequences of our obedience. We can trust him. And wherever he guides, he will provide for us. What's God asking you to remove from your life? The reason it matters is because just like we sing in Joy to the World, if the kingdom of God is to be born in our hearts, then it requires us to prepare him room, to make space. That's why I'm not asking you to add anything to your life. What do you need to remove to make space? And when it comes to us as a church family, this is one of my deepest hopes, biggest dreams, that we would continue to be a community that makes space for God to show up. One of our practices is hospitality, and of course we want to be welcoming to the stranger, to the visitor, to the poor, to the needy, to the addict, to the immigrant, to the sinner, whoever that is, we're going to live that out. But ultimately, we want to be hospitable to God himself. We want this congregation to be a place where we've made room for God to show up, to be born again in us, to establish his home in our hearts, and to transform us by his spirit into people that live as citizens of his kingdom in the midst of all the other kingdoms that confront us. Father God, we are so thankful that you have come to us in Jesus. You have laid down your life in self-sacrifice, in generosity, in co-suffering love. And because you have given and given and given, we now have life and have it to the full. 
And so we thank you, Lord, for this new year. What it represents in the sense of a chance to refocus, a sense of new beginnings. We receive it as a gift. And I pray, Lord, for myself, for each one of my brothers and sisters here today and for our congregation, that your spirit would give us the courage and the faith to hear what you're saying to us and to obey in loving obedience and trusting that you are prepared to handle all the consequences, whatever may come. Lord, our allegiance is pulled. Our attention is often distracted. So we pray that you would help us to live closely with you, to share in the life that you've given us in your Son and your Spirit for the glory of your name and the joy of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.